Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. I wanted to let you know about a new documentary podcast called Smokescreen Fake Priest by Neon Hum Media. It's hosted by Alex Schumann, a news reporter from the Midwest who's been chasing Father Ryan's story for years. This is an investigative show about Ryan Scott, also known by many other aliases. He was a popular priest in the Midwest and he has swindled millions of dollars out of many people. He is a con man who's been accused of fiduciary fraud, elder abuse, stealing property, multiple identities, unlawful possession of a firearm, and so on. He also claims to know who murdered the priest named Father Alfred Coons. Only once did law enforcement catch up with him, but now he's free. And Alex gets an exclusive sit-down interview with Ryan himself. And in it, he reveals a shocking secret. Subscribe and follow Fake Priest now to find out the shocking secret. To listen to the show, just search for Smokescreen Fake Priest on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And look out for a preview in the Indoctrination podcast feed you're listening to now. Thank you so much to the people who have become patrons of the podcast. I truly appreciate it. And more than appreciate it, it is what is helping to keep this podcast on the air. It is a wonderful gift to be able to give to the people who want to be able to be on the podcast and also kind of use the podcast weekly as their support and sometimes their therapy and to know they're not alone. My costs are covered only about 50% by the people who are supporting the podcast. And so we need to be able to increase that in order for it to stay on the air. Please, please, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and become a patron for any amount that you can. It is so important to all the listeners who really wanted to be able to continue. Thank you so much. And a special shout out to the patrons who are giving $10 or more a month. To Holly, Catherine, Tammy, David, Apostababe, Donna, Jessica, Mislove, Michael, Zofia, Audrey, Alex, Ken, Katrina, Sarah, Christina, Brianna, Ludwig, Scott, Peter and Cynthia, Linda, Camus, Lillian, Sylvia, and Maureen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I could not do it without you. And again, to all those listening who want to be able to support the show, go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. Jonathan DePire was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts in March of 1971. His parents met in an organization commonly referred to as The Process. The full name was The Process Church of the Final Judgment. Later on, in the late 70s and 80s, it changed its name again to The Foundation. Many groups actually change their names quite often. 
His parents met inside the group and were paired together by the leaders for passport and citizenship for travel and expansion of the group from Europe to the U.S. He spent the first seven to eight years of his life in the group, living primarily with other children while his parents worked for the group. Most of the children were isolated from their family units and taken care of by other adult caregivers who were not always kind or trained in childcare. The children were not treated very well and they were not allowed to interact with children outside of the group. His mother left the group in the mid-70s and eventually devised a plan to take him away from the group. They were reluctant to hand him over and she was scared of them and knew she was being watched. Systematically, they were trying to keep John from her and she knew she had to devise a plan for their escape carefully. When his mother finally took him out of the process, they lived with other former members before his mother got divorced from his biological father who remained as leader in the group. His mother eventually remarried someone from outside the group, settling into a more kind of traditional and normal family life. While in the group, they moved quite a bit before finally settling in New York City. This is where he went to high school, and eventually he returned to Massachusetts to attend college outside of Boston. He then moved to California to pursue grad school and earn a master's in counseling and has been a professional school guidance counselor, a trauma counselor, and personal coach for the past 20 years, which is very meaningful, especially when you hear his story. Here's John now. Hello, everybody. I want to welcome you to the podcast today. I have a special guest, somebody who I've had the opportunity to meet before, who I hope to be able to talk to again, because there's a lot to cover. I want to welcome Jonathan DePire to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Rachel. It's, uh, it's great to be here. And I always love talking to people about my experiences and also kind of what I learned because there's definitely a healing process, but also it kind of normalizes it. I think when you can talk to and listen and hear from other people who have gone through similar things. Most definitely. And I know we were speaking briefly just before recording about, about that, about comparing notes with other people and that that's a really, really good thing to do. It does, it does normalize uh, your experience or other people's experiences. And so I'm curious just to have you introduce yourself because you do some really interesting work and talk to people about what you're doing now and then also what your interest was in being on this show because of your previous experiences and the expertise that you're sharing with the community now based on your experiences. Yeah, I'll start with just, you know, a little bit about my background and why I do what I do and kind of what led me to it. So Jonathan DePier, D-E-P-E-Y-E-R. My parents both are English. My mom has dual citizenship. My biological father, I don't call him my dad, and I'll explain that to you in a a little bit, but but they met in England in the 60s, in the late 60s, at the height of, you know, counterculture and probably cult popularity. Not that it's not anymore, but certainly at that time, it it was considered to be kind of a fad and something that a lot of young people and were joining Currently, I work as a school counselor working with families and kids who have gone through trauma or are currently going through it, 
I also do some private counseling with people coming out of religious organizations and also coming from difficult circumstances as young kids and how to work through that, how to be successful and find happiness. And I don't want to use the frame get over it because I heard that so much growing up and it's the wrong term to use. It really minimizes what people have gone through. And and when I was younger, it really put me on the defensive if somebody said that to me or even, you know, hinted at it. So a little bit about me. When my parents met, they met at a a cafe in England that was run by an organization called the Process Church of the Final Judgment. You can Google it. You can YouTube it. Uh, there's lots of information. There, it's a large rabbit hole to dive down into. It was one of the more notorious cults of the 60s and 70s. Essentially, I was born into that cult. My mom and my, my biological father were both in the cult. They were paired together. It wasn't a love out of marriage. They were put together as many people are in cults. And my biological father was one of the, I guess you would say leaders of the group. I've never had any relationship with him. And the cult has really metamorphosized through the years. And I've stayed in touch with a few family members who were in it, but it really created a, a rift in the family. And my experience of growing up in it, um, I was there from you know zero to almost eight years old. I didn't think it had that much of an impact on me until I became an adult. And I realized that a lot of my, my, I guess you would look at challenges and just being able to be happy, to feel centered, to feel like I can achieve and have good relationships. I mean, just be normal. All of that was impacted by what I went through as a young kid, because as I did research on it, as I found out more and more about the cult that I was in, how they operated and not that much different than most cults where kind of a pyramid structure and we were living in poverty. I was very skinny. There wasn't a lot of resources and I was, the kids were separated from the parents. So I was not really with my parents at all. So I lived in kind of group home situation. We were not treated well, definitely memories of scarcity, uh, fear of adults being beaten, being verbally and emotionally abused from that time. Time frame from you know young child till my mother eventually took me out of the group after she left, and it it took a long time for me a to acknowledge what went what I went through, but also how it impacted me as an adult and how it was preventing me from achieving my goals and being being normal, feeling normal, feeling like I could I could get some happiness in my relationships and my jobs in my personal life and, and also financially, uh, because one of the things that I realized that happened through the research of my experiences, when you don't have resources and you're in a constant state of hyper awareness and vigilance over resources, I mean, literally, I remember fighting for food and it sounds like a small thing, but as you get older, what happens is you can become a hoarder. You could become somebody who is always worried about the bills and about money coming in because you, you know, you're constantly thinking that you're not going to have enough and that you're not going to be able to take care of things. Because when you're a kid, what happens is your brain, it changes. And there is a chemical reaction where you go into a survival mode where you think that you know, you're wondering where your next meal is going to come from. And if the person who's taking care of you is going to beat you or, or be nice to you, so you self-protect, but those same self-protective 
defensive mechanisms that guard you and take care of your safety as a kid, as an adult, those are counterproductive and they get in your way of building good relationships, being able to find success with your vocation or with your relationships. And until I acknowledged it, I couldn't make progress on it. The first thing I had to do was acknowledge what happened to me and then also the psychological impact that it had on me as a young adult. It wasn't until I'd gotten to my like my 30s and even into my, you know, 40th year where I was not acknowledging how how much of an impact that it had on my underlining psychology. Right. And so I don't want you to lose your train of thought. I just want to say you've said so many things that could be their own podcast. There are so many subjects that you're hitting that are so important. The idea of how people respond to other people who have been through experiences like the get over it or, you know, why are you still complaining? That was years ago or whatever people say to each other that is also very dismissive and does minimize. And so just figuring out how to get what you need from people who you're sharing things with is, is an important subject in and of itself. And then also when you're, you mentioned that it was one of the more notorious cults, um, I, I was going to ask you what you meant, but yes, as you started talking about your experience, I thought, ah, that's why you called it that. And then unfortunately, you want me to give some more description about the cult itself? Yes, I would love more description about it. And I also, I'm wondering just about going back to your point for one moment about the idea of when people have adaptive responses to an actual occurrence, it's not that they were born with an anxiety disorder. They are responding to not having enough or being beaten, um, having that sense of insecurity about everything and uh, going into that survival mode, then it is true that it's hard to shake it because once something has happened to you, like it really has happened. It's not like in your imagination, it really has happened. Then it introduces this idea into your psyche that it could happen again, because why not? It already happened once, it already happened a few times. And so I'm sure it is very, very hard to shake. So I want to, you know, certainly go back to that. So if you could tell us a little, little bit more about your experiences so we understand about you, your motivators right now. I didn't realize it, but when I started doing research about, you know, the process as it's commonly referred to, if you Google the process, you'll be able to see. But the process, Church of the Final Judgment, was really kind of a cloak and dagger cult. There were satanic connotations. They walked around in, you know, dark robes, and big German shepherds, and very secretive. There was a lot of also famous famous people that came through the doors and were members at one time or, or another, and they were linked to some pretty wild circumstances: the son of Sam, you know, and a number of different things. Those things weren't true, but because they were a cult that was really based on propaganda being dark satanic, it got linked in with other things that were not really facts. They were false. But when you try to build membership through this aura of, you know, secrecy and the demise of the world and, you know, belonging, and really they, they do what they did what most cults did. They, they tried to, you know, reach young people who weren't sure of, of, you know, where they were headed and what their beliefs was. And they they created kind of a commune of core believers. And, and I would say in the inter, inner structure, it was only a few hundred members, 
but there was a, a lot of money coming through the doors. You know, there were many famous people that were contributing financially. There were properties being bought. There was millions of dollars, you know, and there was a group of people that were living there in England. And then it came to the United States and it was also in Europe. And there were houses and those houses were set up essentially to make money by selling magazines um, and also running, I guess, what you could call group sessions. And the two leaders of the group actually met in Scientology. It does have some connections to that. The deprogramming aspect of it, trying to find people's maybe trauma that they went through and, 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 and working on that and helping them break through. There were some, I guess you could say, positive aspects of that kind of groundbreaking therapy that they were doing, or, or so it was thought at the time. Because psychotherapy was really, it was a new thing at that time. Yeah. The e-meter and also being able to get to people's unconscious level and the barriers of what they went through as kids, those were all aspects of that cult. But as it morphed and as it went along, it became more of a pyramid scheme where the people at the top were really benefiting, making all the money and living a lavish lifestyle. And the people at the bottom, you know, were, were living in poverty and were being used. And it, there was a shift financially and, and the, the group changed its name and people were divided. And at that time, when the shift took place, my mother left the group with a group of other people. I was living in a group home with all the other children that were taken away from their parents, separated. It's, that's another aspect of cults that's pretty common, where they separate the family units. And how many children were you with? At any one time, it could be eight to maybe 20 kids. Oh, my. Okay. All in the same group home or divided out? Well, I found out later on that there was a couple of different group homes, but I was at one group home. I was at, actually, I was at a couple, but the, the last one I was at was in upstate New York in a town called Narrowsburg. And I was living there. It wasn't what I would call a fun environment. And every weekend I would go see my mother who was living in Manhattan in the city. Then it was every other weekend. Then it was once a month. Then it was every other month. So systematically they were trying to take me from her. And that when she broke away from the group, she started to plan on when and how to take me out. She knew that she was being watched. She had been threatened. So there was some scary stuff that went on, not just for her, but for other members of the group who were trying to, you know, make a life for themselves away from the cult. And that's a very scary thing to go through because not only do you not have any money because you've given it all to the group, um, you don't have any property because that, that's been signed over to the group. You don't have any friends because all of your friends are in the group. And so you're really starting from nothing. And then on top of it, to have a kid who's in the group who's just, you know, a small kid who's now a dependent and requires financial and emotional support. And that, that's just a lot for anybody to take on. So there was a few years in there where it was, you know, it was, it was pretty hard for my mother. I give her a lot of credit. Some people tell me, I can't believe your mom joined the group. And I go, I can't believe that she got out. You know, so there's a different perspective there. And a really important perspective, because I think that that's fundamental for, for people like your mom, who I don't know, but that, that people will blame themselves for having been whatever it is that they term themselves gullible or what, you know, that they somehow should have seen it uh, coming or seen it happening. Or usually people are so stripped of 
their ability to act on their own behalf or feel like they should leave. Uh, and that's often why they stay and they keep being reconvinced or intimidated into, into staying. And really the thing that matters most is how you develop a sense of bravery and resolve. And even with forces working against you, you still do what you know to be the right thing to do, even though you, you worry about being attacked, etc. I just Going back to some little point that you made, and it's it is little, but I guess I want to let people know when you said that it was being supported by some famous people. I'm curious which famous people. The only reason I ask is that there are a lot of people out there who will support organizations without doing their research, or because they think it's cool and counterculture, and you know the sort of the next best thing or the most different thing, and they have no idea how much they are perpetuating something that is so absolutely destructive that is sort of just the kind of evil playground of the leaders. And so who were some of the supporters? Well, I guess some of the more well-known ones was one of the Beatles' like wives, girlfriends was a member, George Clinton and, and his his band. Was that, was that P-Funk, I think, or there, there, there were some politicians, kids that were in there. Mm. There were there just, it wasn't necessarily a famous person, but they were either had a, a, a family member that was in it or they were donating to it. There were, it, it, it was, it's just, it's kind of like, you know, rollerblades. It comes and goes. And the moment that it's hot, everybody's got rollerblades, but where do you see them today? You don't see them. You know? And it was just, it was just, it was just like, lightning bolts of like 10 year period where you know people were interested and, and there were some things about it that were very unique and and even you could say positive you know in terms of the therapeutic components but there was a darker side to it where you know people were not treated well i'm um, certainly the worst thing about it was the way the kids were treated myself included by my count there was 25 or 30 kids like myself that were born into the group and grew up there. And I have, you know, my cousin, a half sister. I mean, that's the other thing that these arranged marriages and sexual stuff that was going on and multiple partners there were, I was living with kids that I didn't even know were related to me. We weren't told. And, you know, it was just, it was very weird. And to make sense of it all, I had to do a lot of research. I had to talk to a lot of people, do a lot of writing and, and talk to people about it because for a long time, you know, I didn't have a really high self-esteem or self-worth and I didn't want to talk about it. You know, I didn't want to open up about it. I thought that that not only was a lost cause, it wouldn't make a difference, but also I was, I was feeling ashamed. I was feeling, you know, that that's something that I just wanted to let it be in the past. I didn't realize at a certain point that until I talked about it, until I opened up about it, that it was not going to be in the past. It was still impacting me. And that's, you know, part of the recovery process is when you, learn about it and you begin to let go of it, then you can share it because you don't get so emotionally attached to talking about it and other people's reactions. For a long time, I was afraid because of other people's reactions. And also, you know, it's, it's, it's an emotional thing to bring up something from your past that you're not proud of. And then I realized one day I was like, it wasn't my fault. You know, I was, a, I was a baby. I was, I was born into it. And then also now that I share and I work with people that have gone through similar stuff, you realize that they feel the same way. When you open up about it, it gives them permission 
to talk about it. But I've noticed that a lot of people, when they talk about it, they get very emotional, as I did when I first started the, the process of it, which is because it brings up these things from the past that you haven't dealt with. There's this emotional outpour and flooding of things that happened to you or that you saw or that you went through and you didn't know how to deal with it at the time. So you really didn't deal with it. You held on to it and you tucked it around. You, you put it down there and just like the pipe that gets filled with steam, eventually it's going to burst. And usually when you talk about it, that's what happens. But it's a cathartic thing. It, it actually helps to be able to talk about it, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is very important to talk about it. I mean, I think that's part of the reason that this podcast exists to give people a chance to talk about their experiences if if they haven't before or to have it validated in in a different kind of way without worry uh, that there is going to be this misdirection of blame and shame. And so you're absolutely right there. There shouldn't be any shame that you're carrying around because this isn't something you did to yourself. Um, at the same time, sometimes people will understand that they need to be quiet because when they did share it or they tried to even share a little piece of it, the way it was responded to just shut them down. And I wonder if you had those experiences earlier on. Yeah, I think when I first shared it, when I was you know, maybe a teenager, early 20s, the response that I got was usually one of either, you know, shock and surprise or one of, you know, kind of dismissive and, you know, not that big of a deal. I, I learned early on that sharing what I went through, it, it, it always elicited some strong reaction. And I didn't want to freak people out, you know, because that's what that's how I felt opening up and talking about it. It's not it's not a cocktail party conversation. You know, it's it's it, it's it's not this uplifting, you know, feel good story. It's one that has some dark points to it and some some baggage comes along with it. So if you're really willing to talk to somebody about it, you have to be able to deliver it in a way where you're not still emotionally attached to their misperceptions or or their reactions to it or responses to it, you have to be so grounded and solid within yourself about where you are at with it that somebody else's reaction or response is not going to change how you feel. You know, how you feel is such an important thing, right? And feeling good and and, and feeling that, that you're worthy and that you're better for those experiences and not bad because of them, because I felt that way. I thought that I was less than because of my experiences. And that somehow that had held me back. And I guess in certain ways it did. I would consider myself to be a late bloomer because of what I I went through. And I think a lot of the people that I know that have come out of religious organizations, extreme religious organizations, it takes a while for them to get their footing on their own. Because they've been in a situation where everything's been done and calculated for them. and, And they've never thought for themselves. and been able to build up their self-esteem in in their ability to be happy and successful, that's always been the job of the group. And you've already had this network around you, be it a small one, that provides security, food, resources, housing, you name it, right? So when you get out of that, you're kind of left to your own, you know, you're, you're, you're on your own, left to your own devices 
but you still have to have that inner belief that, hey, I can do it. I'm, you know, I'm worthy. I'm, I'm hardworking. I'm a good person. You know, you, you have to develop those things on your own. Whereas before it was really given to you from the group. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so uh, I want to be able to have you talk just for a few minutes about the leaders before we go back to talking uh, about you, because I think sometimes people are curious, like who starts these things and what what is their motivator? And is it from narcissism or sociopathy or what? what's your sense now about who the leaders were and are and what made them tick? Well, it was a man and a woman, Marianne McLean and... Wow, the guy's name is escaping me for a second, but I'll get I'll get to it. Essentially, you know, the woman Marianne, she has a very shady background and was involved in prostitution and kind of the underbelly of society. But they both were, as many were, were seeking more spiritual awakening. I guess you could call it, and they both joined Scientology and became auditors in Scientology. They met there, but eventually kind of broke off and started a, I guess, a groundbreaking psychotherapy technique and a center, a center. but they were kind of excommunicated from Scientology at that point. This was in you know, early 60s, late 50s, Scientology, Dianetics, L. Ron Hubbard, all that stuff. When they broke away and they started this kind of new you know, psychotherapy, I guess, for lack of a better term, they invited their friends to kind of be their guinea pigs. And so this man and woman, they got married, they started this therapeutic technique, but they saw that they were making a lot of money. People were getting on board, people were coming in and feeling this is really making a difference in their ability to, you know, deal with their their trauma or the things that they went through, their blocks. And as it grew, they incorporated it into the process church. And eventually, in the mid-60s, you know, I, I think personally, more for financial reasons because of the tax situation with, you know, incorporated churches. So eventually, they created this cafe and a community of, of people, younger people, who were selling magazines, creating the magazines, doing workshops. Some, I would say, you know, group chants, psychic, you know, type of things, healing forums, you know, music, art. They were using anything they could to get people through their doors, right? Right. Okay. And what was the name of the cafe? Well, that's 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 one that's in contention. I first heard Satan's Cafe. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of straightforward. Yes. I mean, you could Google that. There's different places. Different people have different memories of it, but that's, and it, and it wasn't advertised. It was just a door. You know, and it was in a very high profile upper echelon community in London. And one of the members, parent, one of the members was very rich and bought that building for the group. And you would see that pattern kind of go on over the next few years where members who were coming in were given property, given money. And so they started to build these cafes, which eventually led to like centers, not just in Europe. But eventually they married off. My mother and my biological father were put together more for passport purposes and citizenship than anything else. And they now moved over to New Orleans, to Los Angeles, to New York, Chicago, Toronto. And within a eight to 10 year period, they were like 
It was a multi-million dollar company. You know what I mean? If you look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So really good salespeople. And uh, unfortunately. All of them very smart, very well educated and coming from really wealthy families. The core members. Okay. Okay. So that helps me have a sense of what was happening there that while you were sequestered with the other kids, they were building their enterprise and you were left without and really abandoned, neglected, abused. Okay. And so your mom got you out at the age of eight. And I'm curious, when you first got out, in that moment, were you were you feeling relieved? Were you feeling scared? What, what do you remember from that time in particular? I mean, really anger. I mean, my mom and I still remember that moment vividly because like I said before, you know, systematically they were trying to take me away from her. That much is very clear. And she left with some other members of the group and where they were living together on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I was visiting them and it was there was a New Year's Eve, like I would come in for holidays. I wasn't even visiting on weekends anymore. It was just at the holidays. So my mom had devised the plan that for, I think it was for New Year's, because I was coming from you know school. It was the first time I'd ever been in a regular school. And she said it was the break at the middle of the school year that she could find a school for me. So it was my time to go back after the vacation. There was a party and I remember going outside. I was waiting for the elevator and my mom came out from the party and she said, you're not going back. You know, you're, you're never going back. And I wouldn't go back inside. I was like, no. And I stayed, I think in the hallway crying for, I don't know, an hour or two, uh, maybe longer. And my mom said, I wouldn't talk to her for two weeks after that. So I was very angry because everything and everyone that I'd ever known and loved like that was gone. And the expectation now was that I was going to go into this foreign place The only person I knew there was my mom, go to a new school. It was just very overwhelming. And I was, I was just, I didn't know how to process it at the time. I just knew that like, you know, there was, there was something that happened that I couldn't control, not what I wanted. And this theme of, of not being secure and feeling safe, this was just another example and proof that the world was not a safe place and a secure place for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. And it, it says something about how we want what's familiar, and whether or not it's horrific, but it's what we know. Uh, and so there can be the that you know the phrase "better the devil you know than the devil you don't." And so it feels to me like that's what was happening in that moment. And so then. You didn't talk to her for two weeks, and then eventually you were able to adapt to your new reality? I think that's another thing on the positive side, because you know we've talked about some of the negative things that happen as you come out of a you know extreme religious organization. One of the positive things that comes out is resiliency and the ability to adapt. Because at least for me, I didn't know where I was going and who was taking care of me from one day to the next. So as a result of that, I was, it was transitions were easy for me. I, I didn't get sentimental. I moved on from things very quickly and I was able to adjust. So when my mom put me in a new school, 
I, it wasn't that hard for me. I made friends quickly, even though it was hard for me to fit in and to feel normal. I adapted quickly because that was that was how it always had been. I'd always moved around. I'd never there was never stability. There was never you know, security with my parenting or the adults taking care of me or even for food or for for money or for clothes. Those were always things that were very scarce and you never knew where they were coming from. So now that I was in an environment where I knew at least to a certain extent that my mom was going to take care of me, there came with that like, oh, you know, okay, I, I now I'm in a point where I can maybe be here for a while and, and feel secure that I'm going to know where I'm sleeping and that I'm going to get food and have clothes. Because before that, when I was living with the group, those things were a daily question mark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also knowing that you were going to be treated a certain way. And so what was that like to, to transition into a, a, a holding environment that felt safe? I mean, that was beautiful. I mean, you know, that was something that you can't put a price on that. How important that is for a child to have security, unconditional love, comfort, I, you know, I don't think without that, I would not have survived. I would have, you know, I would have been in jail or dead or, you know, joined a gang or something horrible because that's the thing that really saved me because I finally was in a place where I could rely on somebody and something. And more importantly, I, you know, I was able to start verbalizing and identifying how I was feeling without being yelled at or, or beat. Because when I was in the group, you just didn't do that. You didn't tell people how you felt. If you did, there were some very severe, quick, and harsh consequences. Mm. Okay. And what were the consequences? I almost want to. I'm asking with like one eye closed. I don't, <laughs> don't know if I want to hear about it. Well, you know, kids were beaten. I mean, that's. I mean, the worst thing is you would you would be beat. You would be put in a closet for the night. You know, you would be you wouldn't be fed. You wouldn't be allowed you know, to do anything. I mean, we, we, we were beaten with belts. We were locked in, in small places. That's that we were yelled at. We were berated in front of peers. I remember one time, you know, being beaten in front of everybody as an example, because I was hungry and I, I, I stole some, a box of raisins. The, the adult took me, woke up all the other kids, took me in front of the room, put me in the in the chair. All the kids were standing up and pulled out of their beds to watch me. And I was beaten in front of all of them. Just because I was hungry. Hmm. Uh, uh, that is, it's, it's so sad. It's also maddening when you hear about that. Um, and the fact that you could be able to talk about these experiences is extremely important. I think also you think about how much that created behavior modification for the other kids who were hungry, then they knew not to say anything and act on their own behalf. I think the idea also that you were stealing raisins, you know, it's an interesting word, right? Because you were hungry, so you should have the right to have access to food. Um, but the fact that it was called stealing just shows something about how you, the wrong people were going to get blamed for doing bad things. But you were doing what you needed to do for survival, which is actually a good impulse, an important impulse, a necessary impulse. It also speaks to the training and the adults that were put in charge of the kid, right? So clearly that was a lower level job in the organization. And the people who were caring for the kids were not trained on how to 
support them educationally, emotionally, physically. Looking back at pictures of myself and the other kids in the group, because I have the pictures, we're skinny as rails, we're skin and bones. Hmm. So we were not taken care of well. No, no. Okay. Okay. So I know uh, there's so much more to talk about. So in essence of time, I want to defer to you and ask you where you want to go next with with the story or what information you want to be able to impart? Well, I think, you know, now being able to talk about it and share it is because I want to, you know, I want to work with people and help them recover from it because there is a recovery process. And knowing that it does take some work, it does take some time, but you can do it. And the way to go about it is to be able to open up and connect with somebody, but to build up kind of a toolkit, you know, because what I've understood is that it created in me some liminal triggers. As I, I'll refer to them at, at, like that, because they're not on the surface. They're triggers that you don't know are going on, but you'll, you'll start to feel anger, sadness, these very deep emotions. When somebody does something or says something, it can trigger something in you on a very deep level. And if you're not aware, A, that you're feeling that way, or B, that it's because you were triggered, not because somebody else meant, meant it to be that way, but because of what you went through, that you're, you're wired differently than, the, than, the, than a regular person. The internal mechanism that goes on when somebody doesn't return your phone call, or somebody breaks up with you, or you lose a job, where you go with that information and how you process and deal with it, those things do not start to improve until you recognize that those are triggers that take you back to the survival instincts and the feelings that you had during those times when you know you were not taken care of, that you were not feeling secure, that you were abused or taken advantage of, and that knowing that's not your fault, that it's okay to forgive yourself, but more importantly, to let go of those things can't happen until you deal with it. Until you're able to sit down and talk with a counselor or a therapist or a psych- psychiatrist and go, I'm having these intense emotional reactions to things that I don't want to have those intense reactions to, but also other people aren't even phased by it. Why am I having this you know, absurd reaction to this little thing where my friend over here is he he's not even upset by it. He doesn't he doesn't lose any sleep of it. I could be angry for weeks. So I guess, you know, what I'm trying to get to is a place where, where I can help other people identify that that's okay, that you have that, but you can actually work on it. And if you don't work on it, you're gonna get stuck. You're not gonna live to your full potential. You're not gonna be able to find the happiness and contentment emotionally, physically. Because there are some physical things with this, with childhood trauma. And, you know, they did that study in the, in the 90s, the ACEs study on, you know, acute childhood trauma and how that impacts your physical health. You know, because you're, you're at such a greater risk for so many things when you go through childhood trauma that, you know, if you don't take care of it, if you're not aware of it, you're not going to be healthy physically or emotionally. It's disease, anxiety drug abuse, smoking, sex, relationships, work, depression, all of it can be directly attached to your childhood trauma. 
And if you're going through those things and you're not willing to look at it, talk about it, work on it, you're not going to make real significant progress. You know, I'm really glad you brought that up because of the whole biological and physiological impact that this has. And I want you to also be able to talk more about the impact it has on the brain, if you don't mind, because I know that you've done a lot of research and you have a lot of information and also your work, your after school work that I want to be able to, to talk about too. I had a question and then I had a comment. And I'll ask the question a little bit later. I made a note of it because it, it's something I want to come back to. There, there are a lot of clients I have and even some friends who once I started working with clients who had been through trauma, um, whether it was trauma also or whether it was just that they were in systems where they were very easily punished or blamed. I get asked a lot, uh, which I encourage actually, until there is kind of a, a greater understanding and a greater feeling of confidence in the world, is the reason you didn't get back to my email right away because you're angry with me? Is it something I said the last time we got together? Is it because I wrote something in my email in a way that kind of turned you off and, and then you chose to talk to other people rather than me? Or are you trying to send me a message by not getting back to me. And there's so much that happens in response to something that um, nine times out of 10 will have no meaning, um, but so much meaning is ascribed to it. Just because just in case it does have meaning, I need to know because it's unsafe for me if I don't know, because I need to be able to correct it. I have to be able to apologize. I need to know where I stand. I'm, I, I see you nodding your head while I'm talking. So you can, this resonates. Oh, very much so. I mean, my mom and I, when I was a young teenager, probably from 12 to 15, when I was going through puberty, maybe 16, I would cry when my friends wouldn't call me back. You know, now we talk about emails, but originally it was phone calls. Um, And if my friends didn't call me back, I, I didn't know why. Everything that you said right there was really what I would go through. And I realized that later on, there's this needing, a neediness, you know? that I had of, you know, wanting to know right away, you know, what are we, what are, you know, what, why, why are they not getting back to me? They don't like me or did I do something wrong or all that stuff that you just said were, were very typical of, of the way I felt when I was, you know, a teenager. Mm-hmm. I had to learn as I got older that everybody operates differently and it's okay that they operate differently. And it's not a personal thing when somebody doesn't do or operate the way you do or operate. That it's actually what makes us the most human is that we're allowed to think and do things differently. And we don't, not, doesn't mean somebody's good and somebody's bad or somebody's worse and somebody's better. You know, because a lot of the counseling I do with kids, especially, is conflict resolution and helping them to be able to see that. I do it with the adults that I work with too, because I, I counsel some of the staff there too, because they get in conflict with administrators and with parents and helping them to understand that you can't make it a right or wrong issue because then you start to, you start to somebody has to be good and somebody has to be bad, right? And, and that's, that's not a good starting point for any productive growing, learning, you know, getting, getting to feel good. You're never going to do that if somebody's delineated as being good and bad or right or wrong, right? Even in friendships and relationships, I've had to have this conversation with multiple friends 
because there's a lot of adults that when you get into, as you will in relationships, argument or conflict, many people will need to be right. They have to be right, you know, and having to tell them that, look, if we're going to have a conversation and we're going to talk about this and work it out, it can't be a right or wrong thing. Because once we do that, then one of us is good and one of us is bad. We're allowed to think differently about the same thing, right? You see a conflict on the playground between kids. If you go talk to those kids, every one of those kids is going to have a different perspective and a different story about what happened on the playground, right? So the same, I would say the same perspective goes into counseling about this particular issue about emails, phone calls, which is, look, just because somebody doesn't call you back or get back to you directly doesn't mean that, you know, that you're bad or they're good or vice versa, right? It means that they they might be taking time or they had something going on in their lives that they weren't they couldn't, or maybe you just need to let it go. Part of my lesson as a young adult was to learn to let that stuff go and not personalize it, not take it on as something that was wrong with me, that I did that was not good enough, because that was from the group. That was directly how I felt coming out of the group that it was my fault, right? And letting go of that thought process that I was bad. I did something wrong. I needed to be worried. I need to be scared because I didn't, I didn't do something that was up to par from the other person's expectations. Letting go of that and letting people be who they were. If they didn't call me back, I'll go. If I don't hear from them in a week and a two, maybe I'll reach out. And if I don't, that's okay too. And developing relationships now with people, I try to be really upfront with them. Look, I'm great at getting back to people. If you're not, that's okay. But if you don't get back to me, I'm probably not going to continue to call me because I start feeling bad about myself, right? And I just had to realize that that's who I was. And once I accepted that that's who I was, I started to let go of some of those, you know, kind of high school stuff, you know, uh, feeling like you're less than and that, you know, you're not getting called back or somebody's not saying yes to you asking them out because something you're not, you're not, you know, wealthy enough or good looking enough or popular enough. I had to let go of all that stuff and realize that, you know what, if I'm good with who I am and how I feel and where I'm at right now, then what somebody else does shouldn't impact my self-worth and my self-esteem. I need to feel good about me. It's not contingent on these outside and outward things. It's contingent upon the work that I've done on myself and where I'm at emotionally and also how I take care of myself on a, on a physio- physiological level. Right? So I do a number of things to keep myself in a positive frame of mind, especially in times like these when you have COVID, rivets, protests in the streets, you know, not to mention parenting and family issues that may be going on. You have to really take care of yourself and know where you're at and make sure you're in a good place. So you don't feel that when somebody doesn't return your email right away. Right? Right. Right. Okay. And so then I'm curious is these are some of the things also that you have been talking to your students about, about also how to do self-care and why it matters. And also conflict conflict resolution is really quite important. It's reminding me of sometimes what I do with couples or parents and children where someone will say something and I'll have the other person repeat what they said. And then I'll have them say what they think they heard, because that's where the issue begins uh, to hear what the other person didn't say, but you think they meant. Uh, and that's something people learn also within cults because they have to be on top of their game. They have to kind of know what's happening so that 
they can not feel mm, so vulnerable, but then they overgeneralize it to the rest of the world and to their future. And so I'm wondering, just as we're, we're finishing up with our time, are there any other lessons that you've developed that you impart on your students that you want us to be able to learn from today? Well, I think, you know, I try to separate my students, my students from my clients, the students that I work with, because 99% of those are also kids who are coming from trauma in the home setting. Uh, That's why, uh, you know, people ask me, who do I work with? I don't work with the good students. I work with the kids who are coming from, you know, bad backgrounds, single parent homes, lack of resources, you know, divorces, abuse, drugs you know, family incarceration, a a plethora of things. Mm -hmm. With those kids, what you're really trying to help them to understand is that the outside circumstances that you cannot control should not be your focus. If you're going to focus on the things that you're not going to ever be able to control, you're going to lose your way quickly and often. If you can learn how to redirect your thought process to yourself and what you can control, which is how you feel, what you do, and how you respond to the outside stimulus, you're going to be in a much better position to feel good and to do well. Now, with my clients who have come out of acute religious type situations and, you know, childhood trauma, there are, most of those are already adults and they're being able to connect their current challenges with their childhood trauma is is challenging because they they're not yet many of them when they first come to me are not yet able to recognize that these internal mechanisms that they've developed over decades take a long time to break because first you have to recognize like hey this is something that I do this is my defensive mechanism and reaction to the outside world right yeah and I cannot control those outside circumstances, but if I can recognize it when it's happening, I can go in within myself and go, oh, it's happening right now. What can I do to do a preemptive strike so I don't walk around for the next day, week, or month feeling bad, Mm -hmm. feeling angry or feeling sad? Because when you're feeling angry or bad or sad about somebody or something else, they're still walking around feeling fine. You're the one who's suffering. And I realized for myself, when I was feeling that way about, you know, a girl breaking up with me or, or some losing a job or whatever it was, the only person that was losing out was me. My former boss or my former girlfriend, they were moving on. I was stuck. And the, the more that I learned how to, to quicken that process of, of going within myself and going, I'm feeling it right now, uh, you know, and, and stopping myself to go on like a bender of, of you know, self-esteem issues and, and not feeling good for weeks at a time, I could now do it within an hour, you know, and then within a half an hour. It was just about shortening that time frame from feeling a certain way about the person not responding to my email or my, my text message or phone call to be able to get back to a place of feeling good quicker. Really good. And it, it's reminding me of someone who said to me years ago that while you're home holding onto a grudge, the person you're holding the grudge against is out dancing. And I thought that was just the sort of, it's what you're talking about. Like you want, you want to not torture yourself 
And so, and you certainly don't deserve any of that in your own life. And it's wonderful anymore, right? And then you didn't deserve it ever, but you really deserve to have a break from it. Because I know our time is about to be up and I want to just piggyback that with one other thing, which is many times we create our trauma and we do that because it is a, it is a, a known entity and we don't realize that we're doing it, but the chaos that we grew up in was normal. So we create these chaotic environments or relationships or job situations because that's what we're used to. And that's, that's normal. And that's what we think we're worth. Until you start believing that you're worth more and that that's not normal, you don't deserve that, you can't create the better situations. I just wanted to, to say that. I love that. I love that. That is a perfect way to stop. And I know that there's a lot more to talk about. So hopefully we'll be able to do that. But I wonder if we can finish up with you just letting people know if they want to reach out to you and get some support. How can they find you? Uh, well, two ways. One, you can always email me, which is J-O-N-D-E-P, John Depp at gmail.com. It's the easiest way. I check it daily. Those are my phone now. Or they can also, I would say they can text, they can text me at um, 818-795-4359. Text or email are the, the fastest way to get a response. You know, I, the summer times, I probably do the most work with people who want support. And I, I try to be available as, as available as I can because a lot of the a lot of the clients that I work with have kids. And so being able to navigate that situation with children because this taps into your parenting style and your parent your parenting skills. And that's a whole other podcast. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you're a parent, I'm a parent, and I, you know, it, it's definitely, you know, when my son asked me, Dad, Daddy, are you are you mad at me? Are you angry at me? I have to tell him no, and I don't want you to feel like because I'm I I want you to do your homework or take your shower or clean up after you. It doesn't mean that I'm mad at you. It just you know being able to to I, I think it's good that he he doesn't want me to be mad at him. But it's you know that's that's part of my challenge as a parent is to help him understand that you know what doing the right thing is not always the easiest thing, but it helps you long term because then you don't have these other issues that come up later on. You know, I'm not going to be mad at you if you take care of business, but I'll get frustrated if, you know, I come home at the end of the day and you haven't done your homework. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful that you can help him with that distinction because you were left without someone helping you with that because they were mad and then punitive. They weren't just frustrated and helping to motivate you to do the right thing uh, in a way that was healthy, like you're providing for your child now. So he's lucky to have you. Same for your kids. And hopefully... We all want our kids to not walk around with our issues, right? We don't want them to feel the way we, we want them to be better and have more than we have, you know? So you got to teach them to, to have those coping skills early on. Wonderful. All right. So maybe the, the topic of parenthood we can come back to. So until next time. Great. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I love it. Mm, good, good. And I... Uh, I hope people get in contact with you. You have some great insights. And just from your own personal experience as a motivator to really care about this issue in a, in, uh, um, in a very honest way uh, coming from deep inside of you. And so uh, I will talk to you soon. Thank you. One more thing before you go. 
Thank you so much to John DePire for sharing his story with us. I know there's a lot more to his story than we had time to cover today, but I am grateful as always when people contact me to ask if they can use their childhood experiences and their adult insights and valuable pieces of education with us. So thank you again, John. I want to be able to explore something that John talked about. He touched on something that we could speak about a lot more, and I hope we have the opportunity to do so. It's about the idea of insecurity and what it does to the brain. There's something that affects it greatly, something that leaves sometimes an indelible mark on our brain. When we have feelings of insecurity from a young age, when we live in an environment where not only can the roof be blown off at any time, seemingly, but also seemingly the floor can fall out from under us, where we cannot guarantee our safety, we can't predict our lives and the consistency of our lives, and we also can't predict the predictability of our caregivers. It's inordinately difficult to be a child and not be cared for in the ways that you need. To be separated from your family also is something many children have experienced throughout history. Children being sent on transports to save their lives. Children who are left behind when a parent leaves to go to another country in order to send money back and resources back and hopefully bring their children back to them and reunite as a family. Children are torn away from families because of abuse at times and neglect and are put into the system where sometimes their needs are cared for. But more often than not, I'm sad to say, their needs are not necessarily attended to. And there are some people who are raised in environments where it's the norm for children to live in a children's house. And while there have been studies about the long-term impact this can have on long-term relationships, it does not have to be traumatizing, per se, unless it is for you as that child. Unless your nature dictates that you needed that kind of connection, that kind of physical connection, and that feeling of protection, and someone to care for you at night when you had your nightmares, while other children seem to kind of sleep fitfully, that scenario did not clearly work for you. And within a cultic system, there is very often very little awareness about parenting. In fact, usually a very harsh representation of parenting is represented, in part because there is a strictness to the environment and to needing to follow the rules, but also in part because within cults, children are not seen as children. They are sinners. They are a bother. They are things that take up the resources. They are things that should just be put to work. There are things to be trained. And then many abuses and tremendous neglect can ensue. And with kids who are separated from their parents, they can also wonder how much they matter to their parents. And they can see that their parents are spending time doing things for the group, spending time with other people, and their attention is spent elsewhere. You learn from a young age how to take care of yourself and how to take care of each other, but still somehow it's not enough. When we talk about insecurity in the brain, we also talk about the fact that insecurity can come from resource insecurity, where there are limited resources, like in the situation that John talked about, where 
there was sometimes just not enough food. People fought over food. People fought to survive. They were hungry for long stretches of time where they sometimes, I'm sure, felt the need to hoard it, to protect themselves so that they would have enough and were probably punished for doing so. It creates an ongoing anxiety. And also within these environments, you somehow can't be upset about being hungry. You don't have anyone to complain to about it. Sometimes food is also used in a hierarchical way within controlled environments like a system of rewards and punishments by offering food or withholding food to certain people who are deserving or not deserving. It not only creates among those who are dealing with these limited resources a physical reaction, but also a psychological reaction and a social reaction. How much do I matter as part of the group? How much do I matter in general? And it also creates a feeling in many that we know that it's not so much about food necessarily, because there's a symbolism woven into food, but it's about being cared for, and it's about being able to trust those who are supposed to be caring for you. And can you then trust the adults in your life to take care of what you need? It impacts people when they have not had enough food on many levels, because then, as we've learned from addressing issues of hunger and homelessness, hunger affects children and adults. In many, many ways, it affects their ability to sleep, to focus, to learn, to be able to be productive and do the things they want to be able to do and the things they need to be able to do. And importantly, it also affects people's ability to manage their emotions. When you're hungry, it's also all you can think about. When I think about all the children raised in situations where they were kept from their basic needs, not necessarily because of a lack of resources, but just because the adults did not see it as a priority to make sure they were cared for and would rather use their resources elsewhere or on themselves. So when there's that kind of insecurity that leaves its mark on the mind and you can develop as adults to have many, many issues around trust and around needing to know, needing to know there will be enough, needing to know you're going to be cared for. People who have been in abusive relationships test. They test their next partner sometimes relentlessly until they can feel assured that they are now safe and that they're now with safe adults. People also who have been through other bad experiences test the people in their lives now. People who have dealt with having food and other resources withheld from them test their environments and they test the people within them to see if that is a value to them as well. They need to know that their bodies are going to be comfortable and cared for. They need to know there will always be enough. They need to know that the people who they are with will understand why this is important and how it has impacted them. Sometimes when people have gone through childhoods like this, unfortunately, it can turn them, unlike John, into very hateful and resentful people who continue this cycle of neglect and abuse. Those are the parents who withhold things from their own children 
because that's what they had to deal with. But John and others understand firsthand the impact it can have on someone and how it can change you temporarily and sometimes permanently and how it can cause you to think about the world and think about yourself in very different ways. And so it's important to them to make sure that the people they love and the people in their life, especially their children, will have enough. They are determined, committed to supply their loved ones with all they need, or at least their basic needs. Because not only is that one of the things that helps the future generations, but it helps you who have been through this yourself to know that the impact of your childhood, the decisions that were made for you, that you didn't have any control over, that left their mark, will not infuse their way into your life now and into the life of your future generations. You just won't let it happen. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.